one. For the past seven weeks, we've been looking at these powerful opening verses of the book of Ephesians. And I really think this is the most important part of this book as we read here and understand how God lays down the important purposes, his eternal purposes for the world. And as I've said before, the view that we take of these verses and how we interpret this regulates, you might say, how we interpret the rest of the Bible. And we're going to have to make a decision when we read Ephesians chapter 1, and that is whether we are going to give the glory to God or going to give the glory to man. And the difference between those two things is really a complete opposite worldview that we have today. Now, verses 1 through 14 that we've been studying are the introduction of Ephesians. And I don't think these verses leave us with any other choice than to, than to come to the conclusion that God is sovereign, that God is in control of the affairs of the universe, all affairs of the universe, and that God in particular is in control of the affairs of, of man. And so God is the one who is sovereign and God is the one who runs all things. And we thank the Lord that he is and not us. Now, tonight's lesson is part number two of the message I began last week on the blessing of our inheritance. And God has given everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ an inheritance. And Paul describes what this inheritance is in verse number three when he says that they are all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And I want you to notice that phrase, in Christ, because that is an all-important phrase, because it's only in Christ. And we are the only way that we are reconciled to God, and the only way that we could ever have this inheritance is because we are in Christ. Now, tonight, I want to look at part two of the message, and we're going to discover some more truths about this inheritance. So if you would, if you'd stand with me, please, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 11 through 14. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Lord, we just praise you for uh, the truths that we learn in this first chapter. Help us, Lord, to understand these things better. Open our eyes to the message tonight. And Lord, we just give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, as I was talking about this subject of the blessing of our inheritance, I said one of the greatest blessings that we have is that God has made us heirs of salvation and heirs of this inheritance right now. God has made us the promise. And unlike you and I who are unable to keep all of our promises, God most certainly is able to keep all promises that he makes. And the very fact that God has made this promise helps us to know without doubt that we will receive the inheritance that God has promised that we would receive. And the way that Paul phrases this in verse 11, uh, he puts it this way, he says, we have obtained an inheritance. And that's a common way that the New Testament writers write because anytime that God makes a promise, they write in such a way that those promises are so sure that we have no doubt so that we can call the blessings and the inheritance of God, our possession, right at this very moment. 
Now, why particularly does Paul write this way? And why does he speak of this inheritance that we have? And, and on what, what basis do we receive it? Now, that's what I want to uh, review for just a moment. Uh, in the first part of our message last week, I talked about the basis of the inheritance. And there's two ways that you can look at the basis. We can look at it from God's eyes or we can look at it from man's eyes. So we can say that there is a divine perspective of this and there's also a human perspective. And we started talking last week about the divine outlook or the divine perspective. And that starts out with God's predestination. In verse number 11, Paul brings up this word again, predestination. Uh, He spoke about it in verse number 5. And we explained that predestination is God's blueprint for the world. Just as an architect draws up a set of plans for a building and he builds the building according to those plans, so God has also made a plan for this world. And his plan was made up in eternity past, and then everything works out according to God's plan. And so the predetermined plan of God, including things like the election that we've spoken about, it, it includes redemption and justification. It includes a sanctification. And ultimately, this will also include the glorification of every believer in Jesus Christ. Now, the basis of, of God granting the inheritance is because all of this happens according to God's predetermined plan. Then secondly, we noted that it was because of God's power. We have an inheritance guaranteed because of God's power. And everything that is in this plan, God most certainly is able to bring to pass. Paul says here that he worketh all things after the counsel of his will. And we noted that the word worketh is an active word. And that means that God is not sitting around passively. God is not worried about what would happen. He doesn't sit back and wonder what will take place. There's no guesswork in this because everything is working according to the plan because God has the power to make the plan go into effect. And so God's power ensures us that everything that he sets out to accomplish, God will accomplish. And most of our lesson last week was talking about that particular point and the demonstration of God's power. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to get a copy of the CD or listen to it over the internet because understanding this part of it, God's power and God's will is paramount to understanding this whole passage in Ephesians 1. Then the third aspect that we talked about was God's preeminence. Paul said that it is for the praise of his glory. And this is one of the prominent themes of this first chapter, these first verses especially, because over and over and over again, Paul mentions that this is for God's glory. And if we think about all of the reasons why God might do this, we always have to come back to this chief reason that everything that God does is to promote his glory. The creation of the universe and the salvation of man and all things that take place, some way, somehow, will promote the glory of God. So there is a divine outlook in this, a divine outlook on our inheritance. But the next thing that I want to talk to you about is the human outlook. We want to look at the human perspective of this. Paul lays out the divine outlook in verse number 11. He says there's the predestination of God and there's the work of Christ. And then in the last part of verse number 12, he mentions us. And he says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And so now Paul brings into this the human element. Where do we stand in all this? And, and what is man's part of it? Well, 
this is the part, really, that causes us to connect to this inheritance. And Paul says the way that we are connected is through our trust. It's through our belief in Christ. We believe what God has promised, and so, therefore, we are connected to it through belief or trust. Well, immediately upon reading those words, we might feel that we're faced with a paradox. I mean, how does this work? I mean, it appears contradictory to say that that God worked everything out according to His will and that God brings everything about by His will, but then to turn around and say that this is somehow dependent upon our trust and dependent upon our belief. Now, the question is then, is God's plan dependent on us or is the plan dependent upon God? And here's a question that's very difficult for us to resolve because the issue of human responsibility and God's sovereignty are difficult questions. How how do those things work together? And it's not a question that we are going to be fully able to answer in this life at all because the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. He works all things according to his will, but the Bible teaches that man is totally responsible for his actions. In other words, we can say that that, uh, the fact that God chose some to salvation is most certainly true, but it's also true that those who reject Christ are responsible for their own actions. And then it's also true that God works in a person to change his will in order that he might believe. But then on the other hand, the Bible says that a man must exercise faith. He must trust in Christ, and if he doesn't believe, then he won't be saved. And so those are issues that we can't fully resolve. But we don't solve the problem by denying God's sovereignty and making all things dependent upon man. And neither do we solve the problem by promoting God's sovereignty only uh, to the exclusion... We we don't promote God's sovereignty to the exclusion of human responsibility. And we don't promote human responsibility to the exclusion of God's sovereignty. These things have to work together. And so what happens is when, when you promote God's sovereignty to the exclusion of man's responsibility, what you end up is in what is called hyper-Calvinism. And when you exclude uh, God's sovereignty and favor man's, man's responsibility, and you wait it that way, then you end up in the Arminianism of the hyper-fundamentalists. So you have a problem each way you go. And both of those stre- extremes are wrong, and they are terribly wrong. Because there's one side who believes that election is salvation. And they take away the need for a man to actually trust Christ. That's what hyper-Calvinism does. And then on the other hand, you have those who who make man's faith a work. It's something that's generated in man. And that's the error of hyper-fundamentalism. So you don't solve anything by trying to exclude one of these positions or the other. And it's my job as the pastor of the church to preach this just like the Bible presents presents it. There is a divine side, there is God's sovereignty, but there is also the human side, and that's man's responsibility. And we can't promote one to the exclusion of the other. Now the truth of the matter is that we very rarely run into anyone who is a hyper-Calvinist. We don't, we don't daily encounter hyper-Calvinists, and the reason for that is is because hyper-Calvinism by its very nature is self-defeating. Uh, hyper-Calvinism is never going to grow like wildfire because it is not evangelistic, and so you wouldn't expect to meet too many hyper-Calvinists. But on the other hand, we do run into a lot of hyper-fundamentalists, and you know the reason why? Because that is the preferred position and disposition of man. This is what man prefers to believe. So what they would like to do is mention God's sovereignty or talk a little bit about God's sovereignty, 
but they're not content at all that God should have control over their lives or that God should be the ultimate determining factor in anything that we do. And that is definitely the wrong, the wrong conclusion. So hyper-fundamentalism and God's sovereignty are simply incompatible positions. You might as well not have a God as to have a, a hyper-fundamentalist God. Now, I don't really believe that the hyper-fundamentalists think that they save themselves. I don't think that they, they believe that. But they really don't understand where that type of theology logically leads them. And what I prefer to say is it's a theological dead end. That's where it leads them because it can't mesh with the scriptures. It can't work in with the Bible. Now, having said that, there are two issues that need to be addressed in this human outlook. And I might mention this before I go on. Someone questioned me the other day about the use of the term hyper-fundamentalist. And I was talking to Brother Tim Ekno a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this, and he prefers to use a different term. He, used, he prefers to use neo-fundamentalism. But which either one you want, neo-fundamentalism or hyper-fundamentalism, they all amount to the same thing to me. And they're incompatible positions with God's sovereignty and with the Scriptures. Now, then there's two things here that we need to look at as we think about uh, the human perspective of this, the human outlook. And the first one is the uniqueness of Christ. Now, the text here says that we have trusted in Christ, or in Christ is what it actually says. And in the original Greek, there's actually the article the, there's an article placed before Christ, and so that the text would read, who first trusted in the Christ. And the word Christ means anointed one. It's the same word that means Messiah. It's the same word as Messiah. And Jesus is the Christ. And that's the same terminology that's used in 19 other places of Scripture. For example, uh, uh, Peter says in Matthew 16, 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when you put the article the in front of it, that helps us to understand the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is not just another man. He's not just another prophet. In fact, Jesus is not just another anything. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And so from the human perspective, we must rest all of our hope in Jesus. Where does our trust belong? It belongs in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. Then that leads us to the next observation, which is our belief in Christ. And belief is the way that we are connected to this inheritance. Human responsibility includes this element of belief. And of course, belief is the part that's exercised by man. Now, God doesn't believe for us. Belief is something that we have to do for ourselves. And uh, as essential as our election is to our salvation, so is our belief in Christ. That is absolutely essential to us being saved. And both of these things, our election and our belief, are part of God's predestined plan. Election is what occurs before time. Belief is what happens in time. And the scriptures point this out very clearly to us in Romans chapter 10, where the Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And so the scriptures are showing us that the way that we realize our election in God is through the gospel. And without the gospel of Christ, we can't be, be saved. And so we preach and we evangelize, we exhort, we encourage people to believe because without belief, all people will remain lost. 
Now, I've already pointed out in a previous lesson that believing the doctrines of grace or believing God's sovereignty in salvation is not a barrier to evangelism. It doesn't stop evangelism at all. It encourages sane evangelism. It's proper and it's positive evangelism because we know that there is a positive outcome to what we preach. God will save when the word is preached. Now, you'll notice here in verse number 13, he says, Ye heard the word of truth. And we might emphasize this, that no one is saved without the truth. A few weeks ago, I was preaching on Sunday morning, and, and I made a statement. I said, believing, not believing in God is bad. And certainly, to be an atheist, that is a bad thing. But it's also bad to believe the wrong things about God, because any false view of God will never save a person. We have to believe the truth about God. God has to be believed exactly in the way that the Bible presents him. So you have to hear the truth and you must believe the truth in order to be saved. Now the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there must be another element involved here and that is how we believe. And when I say, I should say how we hear, that's the other, how do we hear? I mean, uh, Uh, it's important in our belief exactly how we hear what's been told to us. You see, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, then we might naturally ask the question then, why is it that all people don't have faith? I mean, the Bible makes a simple statement there. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And yet I'll get up and preach a message on Sunday morning. It may be an evangelistic, evangelistic message. And when I'm through preaching... There will be some people in the congregation who are saved, and there are some people who aren't. Now, both sides heard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was preached. So why is it that one person believes and another person doesn't believe? Well, the difference is in how the person hears. Some people hear with understanding, and some people don't. Well, why is that? Why is it that one person hears in a different way than another? Is it because one person's more intelligent than another? Well, if that's true, then only smart people could be saved. And is it the environment? I mean, uh, are they environmentally different? Then if that were true, then only people who live in nice houses and nice neighborhoods and have good families, they're the only people who could be saved. And so that tells us that it must not be something in man. Otherwise, the good in man would be the reason why that person got saved. So it has to be someone, something exterior to man that causes the difference. Now, I assume that everybody in the room tonight, most of you, I look over the congregation and you profess to be saved. But if there's someone here who is not saved and you leave this room tonight without believing in Christ, why is that? Why do we have saved people and unsaved people in the same congregation? The same word is preached. Well, it can't be in the person then. It has to be something external to the person. And of course, that's where God's in, uh, where, where God comes in. Now, there's one preacher that we know of who says that all men have a seed of faith in them. In other words, God has implanted faith in all people. But that doesn't solve the problem at all. Because then we'd have to ask the question, why does the seed grow in some people and the seed doesn't grow in another person? I mean, there still has to be a difference. Well, the fact of the matter is, God has not planted a seed of faith in anyone Faith is something that's uniquely given by God. God is the one who brings us and gives us our faith. So it's God who works something in the individual. It's not the person himself. So the reason then that a person is saved is external to the man. 
And that's exactly what the scriptures teach. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou had not received it? So you see, it's not what is in man that causes him to believe the gospel. It's what God does in man. Now, theologians refer to this or call this the effectual call to salvation. You see, when the gospel is preached to uh, all people in general, when we have a mixed group here of saved and unsaved people, there's a call that goes out and it goes uh, to people in general and by by the fact that it goes to people in general, that's exactly what it's called. It's called a general call. But then when the gospel is preached and it becomes effective in a person's heart, when the Holy Spirit begins to use the gospel, then it becomes the effective call or it becomes an effectual call. So in other words, the effectual call is the one that results in a person's faith. And so when the Bible talks about when faith comes, says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about the effectual call of a person. And that's what makes the difference in one person who hears and believes and another person who hears and doesn't believe. It's the effectual call of the working of the Holy Spirit. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to come back to that and I'm going to explain it more fully as we look at the next verses. And we'll talk more about this general call and effectual call and how that actually works. But when I preach a message, I don't stand here and worry over the problem of people walking the aisles to be saved. And there are some preachers who feel pressured. Uh, Preachers uh, feel pressured to get so many people to come down the aisle. And if they don't do that, then they're not good preachers. They're not good pastors. And and for some reason, people would not call that person a soul-winning pastor because there's not people walking the aisles all the time. And so this puts pressure on ministers to to preach in such a way that they try to encourage and cajole uh, cajole and and just simply uh, put pressure on others, in fact, to believe. And so you have preachers who'll sing 47 verses of just as I am at the end of the service and trying to get people down the aisles. And I've actually seen people walk the aisles just so they can get the invitation over with. But I don't do that. And the reason that I don't is because it's God who has to move the person to salvation. Uh, All the begging and pleading and everything that I could ever do would never cause the first person to come to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can move a person from unbelief into belief. But there aren't a lot of preachers who believe in coaxing and persuasion and and, uh, persuading the intellect, and that's the thing that moves the person. And so you have invitations that are as long as the message. And one thing I always hated to hear preachers say that a preacher will come down to the end of his sermon, he'll close the Bible, and then he'll say, now we come to the most important part of the service. It's the invitation time. I disagree with that. I, I believe that the most important part of the, of the sermon, most important part of the, of the service, rather, is when the Bible is open and when you are preaching the Word of God because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There is nothing that we do in this church that's more important than reading and expounding God's Word. That's the only way that people are going to be saved. Now, what happens then uh, when a person is sitting back there in the pew, they hear the gospel preached, and, and the effectual call of salvation comes to that person. 
Is it my persuasion? Is it something that I have said? No, because here's what a person will do. When a person has been touched by the Holy Spirit of God and they are ready to believe, that person will jump over pews if he has to to get to the place where he can tell somebody what's happened to him. And that's how God works. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces people. Now, I might wonder at times, what is God doing? And why isn't it that that people don't move towards salvation when you have a message that's so clearly preached? Uh, I might wonder about that, but I don't worry about it. I don't worry about it because God's not going to put pressure on me for that because he's the one that has to deliver these souls and has to save them. And folks, when you learn that, when you learn that, that is the most liberating thing that you'll ever know about the power of the gospel. Now, people in the hyper-fundamentalist churches have so much pressure put on them to perform that if they are not leading someone down the aisle every week, then they're considered to be second-class Christians. And you might think that, well, no, that, that people wouldn't do things. Oh, yes, they absolutely do. Uh, first-hand experience, I can tell you that. Uh, in churches that I know of, if you don't have somebody coming with you and bringing that person down the aisle every week, then you're not as good a Christian as somebody else. Well, that's too much pressure for me. I mean, I'm going to have to leave the saving up to God. I don't want any part of that. But you may remember this even a few years ago. We had a singing group come from a, from a hyper-fundamentalist college in Chicago that came to sing here. And when they came, they'd been on the road for about two weeks. The first thing that they did when they got up to sing was to say, we had 1,200 converts in the past two weeks. Folks, I'm someone who believes that God can save anybody... And God can save thousands of people if he wants to save them. But the question that needs to be asked when you hear something like that is, where are those people now? Do they serve in the church? Do they serve the Lord? Have they been baptized? What's the evidence they've actually believed? And most cases, if not all, you find out that there is no salvation because those those people have never really trusted the Lord. And so we're not worried about the numbers of converts. We let God take care of that. He's the one who has to bless with it. So when we talk about belief then, how you hear is the all-important thing. That's the most important thing. And so the question is, have you heard the truth? And has the Holy Spirit made that truth real to you? And if you're a person who can say that you've never had the leading of the Holy Spirit in whatever it is that you believe then you're still in unbelief as far as the scriptures are concerned. That's not true belief. So we're connected to this inheritance through God-given faith. We must exercise faith. That is our responsibility. But we only can exercise it when the Holy Spirit has worked effectually in our hearts. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that someone said, when, when you look at the door of heaven... On the front side of the door, there's a sign that says, whosoever will may come. And we firmly believe that. And then when you get on the other side of the door and you look at the back side, there's also a sign that says, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. I just leave that in God's hands and let him work all of that out. Now, let me sum sum this part up by quoting from one commentator. This person said, faith is man's response to God's elective purpose. God's choice of men is election Men's choice of God is faith. In election, God gives his promises, and by faith, men receive them. So that's the human outlook. There's the divine side, and there's the human side, and you put those together, then you have the basis for our inheritance. 
Now, let's move on to the second part of the inheritance of the saints. And the second thing I want to talk about is the certainty of our inheritance. We look at verse number 13. It says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, the first part of this chapter... Paul deals with the first person of the Godhead. He speaks about how God the Father elects an eternity past. Then he transitions to the second person of the Godhead, and he speaks about Jesus Christ and the fact that Christ has come to redeem us. But now in this third part of this, he transitions to the Holy Spirit, and now he talks about how the Holy Spirit works in salvation. And so we see the full magnitude of the Godhead in these first 14 verses. And that should help us to understand why these 14 verses are so important to the understanding of Scripture. I mean, you have the work of the entire Godhead involved in our salvation. And if you miss part of this, if you miss what the Father has done, or miss what the Son has done, or miss what the Holy Spirit has done, and you don't put it all together, then you have an incomplete view of salvation, and you can even end up with an erroneous view of salvation. We have to consider that all parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved, very intricately involved in our salvation. So we come now to the Holy Spirit's part, and the Holy Spirit is the one who locks down the certainty of this inheritance. So God the Father plans it, the Son implements it, and God the Holy Spirit guarantees it. Now, let's see how he does that. How does the Holy Spirit guarantee our salvation? Well, the first way is by a divine seal. Paul uses the word seal. What is a seal? What does he mean by a seal? He says that those who have believed have received a seal. And so that must mean that those who don't believe don't have this seal. Well, back in the Bible times, a seal was used as an official stamp of approval. A seal would be used to place authority on some object. The king would put his seal on something, and that was to say that uh, he had authority. It was to indicate his authority. You're not to mess with whatever the king has put his seal upon. Now, there's two ways that we can look at this seal that God has given us. The first way is that we are secure in Christ because of this seal. Now, the seal that God puts on us is a seal of protection, And one of the clearest proofs that we have in the Bible of eternal security or that a person could never lose their salvation is the fact that we have been given this seal. Now, the seal that I'm talking about here is not like a a piece of wax that you melt and put on an envelope and then you stamp it. It's not that kind of a seal. And it's not the kind of seal like you have on a mason jar. You know, when you you, uh, fix jam or preserves, you have a mason jar and it has a seal on it. Now, admittedly, you know, there are some Christians who look like they've been sealed that way. They look like dill pickles or something. And uh, uh, rather than, you know, look like they're living, they do look like they're preserved. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not that kind of a seal. This seal is the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit himself is the seal. And so when a person believes in Christ, there's a transaction that takes place in heaven. The soul is sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that shows us that the transaction is complete. And that person then has moved from death into life. He's moved into eternal life. And once you have that seal on you and the transaction is complete, you could never move back in again to the old life. You couldn't move back into being lost again because you've been sealed by the Spirit. 
Now, there are people, of course, who believe in falling from grace, and they believe that you can lose your salvation. And so, some of them believe that they are able to break the seal. If they stumble, if they fall, then the seal is broken. But the problem with that is they don't really understand what the seal is. The seal is the Holy Spirit himself. And the Holy Spirit has the power to keep us. And heaven and earth, nothing in heaven and earth could ever move, remove that seal from us. Paul talks about the security of our salvation in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. I don't have time to read that, but you take time to read it later, and you'll see that all things in heaven and earth are mentioned in those verses, and that tells us that there's not one single thing that could ever endanger our security. Well, some people say, well, yes, you can lose your salvation, because if the Holy Spirit is the seal, then God can remove the seal. But I would ask you then, have you ever heard of the word immutability? Have you ever heard of the immutable God? What that means is that God is unchangeable. And God is unchangeable because the first thing that God does is always the right thing. You see, God's not a person with guesswork. He doesn't try one thing. If it doesn't work, he tries another. The first thing that God does is always the right thing. And so God is never going to back up. He's never going to change his mind. And why wouldn't he? Because since he does things the right the first time, if he did something the second time, that must mean then what he did the first time was it right. Now your mind starts to swim a little bit and you're running around in circles and chasing your tail with that kind of thinking. God can't back up because whatever God does is perfect. A perfect God can't do the wrong thing. And so once we've been sealed, God would not remove that seal for any reason because it is the right thing. It's the very best thing that can be done. Now, some people think then uh, with people who lose their salvation, they're thinking this way, that God is in heaven and he's busily erasing names from the book of life and then writing names in the book of life and then erasing names in the book of life and then writing names in the book of life. And it's all dependent upon how many times you lose your salvation and how many times that you get saved again. Folks, that is not the picture in the Bible that we have of God. God is an unchangeable, immutable God. The transaction is finished, the seal has been applied, and there is no going back. Now, the second thing we see here is that we are possessed by Christ. Now, that means that this seal is also a seal of ownership. God says that you are mine. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been bought with a price. You belong to me. And so I put my seal upon you, and it's a seal of ownership. And the Bible teaches us that our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves into this body, and this is the place from which he works and which he reigns in our lives. So this is God saying, this is my possession. You've been bought with the price. And that's what redemption is. That's what it's all about. The word redeem means to buy. And that's what Christ has done. And so we belong to him. And so never again could we become the slaves of sin. So what we see is the father chooses us. The son redeems us. And then what the Holy Spirit does, he comes to us and he puts up a security fence. He puts up a security system all around us. So there's no being that could ever come and take our souls away. We belong to God. So we're Christ's possession, and we're his possession forever. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
But I want to show you something else because the Bible teaches us that God goes even beyond this. And he demonstrates our security and our safety in Christ in another way. And the next way is by a divine pledge. And the divine pledge is in verse number 14. It says, which is the earnest of our inheritance. The word earnest means a pledge. It's a guarantee. It's like money that's taken as a guarantee that something will be finally purchased, that there'll be a further transaction that will take place. And so down payment money is put. That's what an earnest is. Now, why would you suppose that God puts it this way? Why does he say that you have to have the down payment or you have to have this kind of pledge? Well, the reason is that God has promised to redeem the whole man. Now, when you get saved, you have part of the transaction that takes place. Your soul and your spirit belong directly to God. They are purchased possession and they are changed. But the body is not changed. Now, God has purchased all parts, body, soul, and spirit. The body belongs to him. But as long as we're in the flesh, we haven't been perfected. There's still a future redemption that has to take place. There's a change that must happen. We have to receive a glorified body. And so God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a guarantee that he's going to redeem the whole man. The body will be redeemed as well. So since God has promised to redeem the body and he gives us uh, uh, the Holy Spirit as the pledge of the guarantee of that, then we know for certain that the body will be redeemed. Now, the body is going to be redeemed in one of two ways. If we die before Christ comes, we'll go into the grave and we will await the resurrection. And then when Jesus comes back, our bodies will be raised, they'll be glorified, and then we'll be given a resurrection body that's just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And the word sleep there is a metaphor for death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And so that's one way that your body will be glorified. If you die before Jesus comes, then your body will be raised and then it will be changed to have a glorified body. But what happens if you're alive when Jesus comes and you haven't yet died? Well, then the Bible teaches us that you'll be glorified in a different way. And that is that your body will be immediately transformed without going through death and then made into a body like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John says this in 1 John chapter 3. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this is why God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. He lets us know that there is no way that this body is going to end up in hell. This body is going to be redeemed. Body, soul, and spirit are all redeemed. And so we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us right now as the guarantee of that final redemption. Now, why do we believe this? And why will we receive the inheritance? And why does Paul write that we have obtained... Why? Because God has put it all into place in the predetermined plan. 
Do you see how important this is? You, if you ignore the fact that God has a plan before the foundation of the world, then you miss out on these guarantees. You can't have these kind of guarantees. It all happens because it was in the plan. And God carries out the plan. Now I want to close the lesson tonight in these verses with this thought. Every Christian has the sealing of the Spirit. Now I want you to notice what it says in verse 13 in the end of the verse. The Bible says, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. It's a little bit confusing for us to read the word after in this verse because it looks like the sealing of the Spirit is something that is subsequent to our salvation. And so based upon that, there are some people who believe that the sealing of the Spirit is another work of the Holy Spirit. That you get saved, and then sometime later, maybe so, maybe not, then you'll receive the sealing of the Spirit. And then there are others who think uh, that the sealing of the Spirit is some kind of special emotion that you get. Sometime later down the road, after you get saved, this emotion will come over you, and maybe it will come, and maybe it won't. And so then you would have some Christians who have the sealing of the Spirit, some who are still waiting on it, and some Christians who would never receive it. And so what that does is leave the door open for all kinds of erroneous views on the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's in that little spot there, what we read in here, that the charismatics place the speaking in tongues and they place the gifts of the Spirit and the healing and all of these things. They call it a second work or a subsequent work of grace that takes place after a person gets saved. But the problem is the word after here and the interpretation of the word after. So if you go back and you look at this the way in the original language, is the word after here is not after like we think of after, but after here means a continuing motion. In other words, you could translate the verse like this, in whom having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So the sealing of the Spirit occurs at exactly the same time that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that would mean that every single person who believes in Christ right then receives the holding of the, uh, the, the uh, sealing of the Spirit. So that means every person in this room who has believed in Christ, you have a personal guarantee because you have the sealing of the Spirit and that occurred at the moment that you put your faith in Christ. So when a person moves from death to life and the Holy Spirit's been given into his heart, the transaction is complete. The Holy Spirit comes, he seals, and it comes at the same time of belief. So everybody who's a child of God has been sealed by the Spirit. Well, one thing, I know it's true by the explanation I've just given you. That's not the only place in the Bible we could find this. But how else do we know it's true? Because there is not one place in all of the Scripture that tells us that we are to seek for the filling of the, uh, for the, for the seal of the Spirit. Now, if that was something that come later, then certainly the Bible would tell us, you need to get on this thing, you need to get busy on this, and you need to start seeking this seal of the Spirit. But the Bible never tells us to seek the seal of the Spirit. It tells us to seek a fuller manifestation of the Spirit. It tells us to seek the filling of the Spirit, but never tells us to seek the seal. And the reason it does it is because we've already got it. We don't have to look for it or wait for it. It's already ours. So Paul finishes then the 14th verse by saying this, unto the praise of his glory. And so one more time before the introduction of this book is over, Paul comes back to that theme. Paul says this is the whole reason why all of this takes place. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together for the glory of God. And so you know what that leaves us? 
It leaves us with only one place that we can work, and that's for the glory of God. And that's exactly what God expects us to do in everything we do. Do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message we've been able to preach tonight, the truths from your words. We thank you, Lord, for this infallible guarantee that we have of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that our salvation can never be taken away from us. We are safe and secure in you, and we just thank you for that, Lord. We just ask you that you would speak to hearts tonight, draw us close to you through the word that has been preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's please